G'day, and welcome to this week's edition of Stick Together, Australia's only national radio program that brings you workers' stories, union news and discussion on social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR and broadcast right around the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. My name's Matt Conkle. This week, a long fight to increase the penalties for bosses when workers are killed has passed the Victorian Parliament. We speak to the lead of the Victorian Trades Hall Council's OHS unit about the new industrial manslaughter laws. Then, as the bushfire season is upon us again, seemingly starting earlier every year, we speak with another member of the Trades Hall's OHS team, Renata Mussolino, about the health and safety risks that bushfires bring. We'll bring you those interviews later, but first, some union news. The Morrison Liberal government has been handed an embarrassing defeat, failing to pass its union-busting bill in the Senate. The government was relying on the support of crossbench senators to pass the bill, which is designed at disqualifying militant activists from union leadership roles and deregistering unions who break the already shamefully one-sided industrial laws in this country. The ACTU claimed that the bill could see unions deregistered for paperwork breaches, but we all know that the government's main plan was to stamp out grassroots industrial democracy and the rights of workers to organise and withdraw their labour. They're targeting the type of terrible lawlessness we saw when the CFMEU was fined $50,000 just for taking a short stop work action until a building company provided a dedicated toilet and change facilities for its women workers. Many have thought the bill was set to pass, with one employer group preemptively issuing a press release heralding its passage. The government was shocked though when Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party voted against the bill, leading to its narrow defeat after a tied vote. Tens of thousands of emails and phone calls were made by union activists to cross bench senators in the weeks leading up to the vote. However, the fact that the union movement held its breath while Pauline Hanson made up her mind is yet another demonstration that our power will never lie in the leather-bound chambers of Canberra. As workers, our power will always lie in our ability to stop production and shut down our workplaces. The government has already announced that it will bring the bill back to Parliament for another go, begging the question, what will our movement do when the government, desperate to strike another blow against us, manages to secure just one more vote in the Senate through whatever means it takes? Cleaners and their supporters have staged two noisy protests at the Queen Victoria markets in Melbourne. Members of the United Workers' Union are raising concerns over job losses. They say without intervention, 20 workers will go into the Christmas period without a job, which represents about 30% of the current cleaning staff at the market. On ABC Radio, market management were unrepentant, calling it a straight business transaction following their decision to award a tender based on best value terms. This is Union Delegate Victor Barrientos. So... We are disappointed of the decision made by the, by the management of the Victoria market because we know it's in their hands the security of the job of those cleaners. Without you, how we can survive? Tell me. Tell us. Explain us, please. How we can do it when they are putting people in the street? How? For more details on how you can support the cleaners, just head to the Facebook page of the United Workers' Union. Tram workers in Melbourne have taken their third stoppage in their struggle to win a new enterprise agreement at Yarra Trams. The company had tried to prevent the stoppage, claiming that it would put the public at risk. However, it was unsuccessful and the workers again showed they have the power to make the tram network fall silent. The entire system shut down for four hours last Thursday. Hundreds of tram workers descended on the Victorian Trades Hall to hear from leadership about the dispute and the progress of bargaining. 
the union remains resistant to Yarra Trams' proposal to expand the use of part-time workers, which is currently capped at 4% of the total staff. Workers say that increasing part-time workers would see sweeping changes made to rosters and their ability to earn additional income through voluntary overtime. Workers assembled declared that they would tear up any further attempts by the company to push a non-union deal. Two such proposals have already been overwhelmingly defeated. A further four-hour stoppage is scheduled for Thursday the 5th of December. The Victorian Royal Commission into Mental Health has handed down its interim report, and it is highly critical of the state system finding that Victoria is only capable of adequately supporting one in three of its residents living with severe mental illness. It makes several recommendations including the urgent funding of more acute care beds, as well as investments in graduate placements and scholarships to better improve staffing skills and the capacity of the system. The Health and Community Sector Union, who has long campaigned for more workers in the sector, has welcomed the recommendations. The ASU, who represents social and community service workers, has welcomed the additional clinical resources but said that the Commission's report falls short and that more needs to be done to resource the community service providers who are often the first point of contact with people who need help and that more early intervention at that point may arrest a further decline in mental health. The Andrews Labor government has accepted the interim report and suggested that a statewide levy or tax may be introduced to provide the necessary funds to support the findings of the Commission. The Royal Commission will hand down a final report in October 2020. If you or a family member has immediate concerns or requires assistance, you can contact Beyond Blue on 1300 224 636 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. A series of protests and sit-ins demanding urgent action on climate change have been held in major centres around the country. Called in response to the devastating bushfires around Australia, hundreds of school students and community supporters took to the streets in Victoria, taking over the steps of Parliament House to make their demands heard. And in Sydney, students and workers rallied together. This is Rebecca Gilson, rank-and-file member of the NTEU and organiser with Workers for Climate, speaking at the Sydney rally. And as workers and students, we have more power than the government would like us to admit. We are the ones who lay the roads. We are the ones who build the cities. We are the ones who teach our children. We are the ones with the power. The power to shut down the entire system. The government will not listen to us unless we speak in a language that they understand. And that's profits. Take away their profits. Take away their power. And we don't have just the power to shut the system down. We have the power to decide what kind of society we want to live in. We have the power to demand a just transition that is actually just. That means fighting for public investment into communities that rely on the coal industry who desperately need jobs, health clinics, and infrastructure development. A just transition means demanding millions of climate jobs, jobs that are safe and unionized, that treat workers fairly and with dignity. A just transition means fighting for 100% publicly owned renewable energy, because we're seeing a transition to renewable energy, but it's by no means just. Students and their supporters have staged rallies and protests around Pakistan last week, demanding the right to organise in student unions and for improvements to the quality of education. There were protests in up to 50 cities around the country against the more than 30-year ban on the formation of student unions. 
Student demands also included an end to rising fees and the government's budget cuts to universities. Pakistan's president and former test cricketer Imran Khan's popularity has been fading since he signed an IMF bailout mandating the slashing of welfare spending and other social programs. Students claim that this has led to the higher education budget being cut almost in half. Since the beginning of the student union ban, most students in Pakistan are required to sign an affidavit pledging not to organise on campus. Students claim that this ban is designed to depoliticize the youth, with veterans of student organizations before the ban speaking around the nation about the important role that student unions played in giving a students a voice. More protests are planned. You're listening to Stick Together, union news and workers' stories broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Last week, after a decades-long campaign, workers have struck a blow with the passage of industrial manslaughter laws through the Victorian Parliament. The new laws create a new crime where bosses will be held to account if someone is killed on their worksite. We spoke with the leader of the Victorian Trades Hall Council's OHS unit, Dr Paul Sutton, to find out more. This is a long-awaited victory, isn't it, with efforts to legislate it going back several decades? 31 years, to be precise, here in Victoria. Search through the historical records at Trades Hall indicates that we started advocating for industrial manslaughter, manslaughter laws in 1998. And then uh, we had our first crack at really getting them legislated when BRAX came to power in, in 99. Unfortunately, at that time, we didn't control the upper house um, and the laws didn't get through. And so 20 years on, it's been passed through the upper house. Just what is industrial manslaughter and who can be charged with that crime? So industrial manslaughter is a crime of where an employer is criminally negligent and that negligence results in the death of a person. It could be a worker, it could also be a member of, of the public. Uh, the laws that just got passed through the upper house will see companies, so such as body corporates, um, be liable uh, and also their senior officers. So the senior managers, if they make decisions which are criminally negligent, then they will be held to account as well. These laws extend to cover the Crown, so every single employer in the state of Victoria is covered by these laws. So before these laws came into place, what were the consequences for employers if one of their workers was killed at work? A slap on the wrist. So we saw employers getting away with small fines. You think of Grocon, fined $250,000 after three people were killed when its wall collapsed. We saw Red Treeback Services fined $150,000 when they sent a 22-year-old up a tree next to some power lines that they neither turned off nor suppressed. Fines like that that we continued to see over time, which indicated that our current laws weren't providing either justice for the families or a deterrence for employers. It simply became the cost of doing business, and that's what we wanted to fix with these laws. What consequences were there for senior managers of these businesses or enterprises or even the, the government in those circumstances where a worker was killed? There was none. We haven't seen individuals be prosecuted in that way under our current laws. So they would, they would charge employers, they would charge the company, and that, and that was it. Other than senior managers, are there any other people that can be charged with this crime? For example, if you're working with somebody and they are killed at work, can workers be charged with industrial manslaughter? Workers cannot be charged with industrial manslaughter. I should make clear, though, that our current criminal manslaughter laws would capture a worker who is criminally negligent and as a result of that negligence another worker dies but really that is just so few and far between what we're actually interested in dealing with here is the fact that it's the employer who decides when how and where work will get done they have that managerial prerogative that we all know and love 
and they use that managerial prerogative to control their workplaces and they control health and safety. Now, our Act makes it clear that the duty to provide a safe workplace is not on the worker, it's on the employer. And so when the workplace turns out to be not safe and it, it's killed someone, if there's actually criminal negligence in there, then that employer should be held to account and currently it's not happening. Will there be a case of industrial manslaughter every time a worker is killed at work? I think that's unlikely. It'll depend upon the circumstances, but we will see prosecutions come through the pipeline. The first one in Queensland has been bought under their laws that were introduced a year or two ago. The government down here has promised an extra $10 million so that WorkSafe can hire a number of additional investigators. So I think the that we have a very real focus down here on how these laws get implemented to ensure that they they do prosecute a number of bosses coming out of it. Will Mm. they prosecute every single time? I don't think our WorkSafe is is necessarily up to that at the moment. And you mentioned that these laws exist in other states and you mentioned Queensland in particular. Are the laws in Victoria very similar to those laws or are there differences? They're very similar. Uh, They were based off, off similar principles. We have some important differences in Victoria, though. Industrial manslaughter provisions don't apply to mines in Queensland. Secondly, in Victoria, our laws will come into play if a, a person is killed, and it doesn't have to necessarily be an employee or, or a worker. It could be a member of the public, whereas in Queensland, their laws are limited to when workers get killed. So I think our laws are better on those two fronts. I should also note that the Northern Territory legislated yesterday as well on industrial manslaughter so it is growing throughout our jurisdictions and eventually hopefully we'll have industrial manslaughter laws in every state and territory. In Queensland this week they've also come out to say that they're looking at introducing new industrial manslaughter bill to expand the coverage into the mining sector uh, after there's been seven deaths in the Queensland mining industry just this year alone. Mm-hmm. Um, you and unions have been working with the families of workers who've been killed at work to get these laws through. Have you spoken to those families since the laws passed and, and what does this law mean to them? To the families from from Delacombe near Ballarat, uh, who lost their one family lost their son, the other lost a uh, husband and dad in the Delacombe trench collapse, it means the world to them. They've been fighting for this for over twelve months now. They have been critical, a critical part of that campaign. And and as Dave Brownley often says, you know, he, he's not going to get justice for the death of his son, and he saw justice as, as laws coming into play that, that will save lives. So. This law we know will save lives. Companies will put a renewed effort on their their health and safety. These laws are now on a statute book. And if you have a workplace that is dangerous or if they're they're asking you to do something dangerous, then I think you have every right to turn around and say, look, there's some new laws here that this company or or even individuals are going to get done if someone dies. And, And you're asking us to do something really dangerous right now and it could kill someone and you don't want to go to jail... How about we sort out a different solution? You know, what we've noticed in Queensland in the union movement is that when these laws came in, it changed the conversation around health and safety in the workplace. So I would just encourage union activists, union health and safety reps, union officials, start mentioning these laws when they're having meetings with the boss about health and safety. And as we mentioned at the very start, this campaign's been a very long one and involved a lot of political lobbying. When it came time to vote on the legislation, how did all the parties line up? It was Labor, obviously, is an election commitment, so they, they backed it in. Um, and it's no surprise that the, the Liberals and Nationals, the Coalition, um, went with their employer mates 
on this one. And in fact, I watched the debate in the upper house, and it was really quite stark. Like they didn't even bother to try and hide the fact that all of their speaking points came directly from the employer groups. And in the end, in, in favour of these laws, you had uh, the ALP, you had the Greens, you had the Animal Justice Party. Andy Medic was a great advocate for these laws. You had Rod Barton from the uh, Transport Matters Party. We also had, um, once the votes on the amendments had been sorted out, we also had Cliff from Sustainable Australia. Clifford Hayes, I think his name is, he, he came over and, and voted as well. Catherine Cumming voted for these laws as well. Um, and the only other people who didn't, did not vote for them were the Hinch Justice Party, which I thought was a, a bit odd, given that um, these laws are about ensuring justice for families and that people are held to account when they're criminally negligent um, and they didn't even want a bar of it. Crazy. Now, if people want to find out more about this law or, or the changes to it, where can they go to find that information? So the laws should be up on the Victorian Parliamentary website. Um, I'm pretty sure we'll have them up on our website pretty quick too, www.ohsreps.org.au. Between those two websites, you'll get all the information you need. Dr Paul Sutton, thanks very much for joining us on Stick Together. Thanks for having me, Matt. You're listening to Stick Together, union news and workers' stories all around the country thanks to the Community Radio Network. That was Dr Paul Sutton from the Victorian Tradesall Council speaking about the passage of the industrial manslaughter laws last week. We stay with OHS issues now, turning our attention to the arrival of yet another bushfire season. We've already seen destructive firestorms all over the country in recent weeks, and these fires pose unique health hazards to firefighters, but also workers and volunteers in and around the fire zones. We spoke with another member of the Trades Hall's OHS unit, Renata Mussolino, about some of those issues. Renata, can we first start by talking about the volunteer firefighters? Do they have OHS rights similar to those of paid firefighters? Firstly, some of the CFA people are paid, so they would be treated as normal employees. But as as those who are volunteers and who don't get paid, an employer, which in this case would be the CFA, still has duties to others, uh, and that includes volunteers. So there's a section of our Act and a section of the National Act as well which puts duties on employers or persons who conduct businesses or undertakings to other people. And that, that is really broad and it counts. It includes volunteers, it includes you know, students, and it basically says that anything that um, the business does, that the enterprise does, um, they have to try to ensure that that isn't going to put the health and safety of others at risk. I think it's probably a bit clearer under the other legislation where... They have this general term, which is PCBU, which would include the CFA. And then it has a general term of worker. So those volunteers would be workers under the WHS Act, which means that all the duties that employers have to employees in Victoria apply to those people under those other acts. So workers have the right to refuse unsafe work, but the nature of fighting fires would be considered inherently hazardous. How would organisations like those fire services go about mitigating those risks and at what point is a risk too much to take? There are going to be risks that can't be mitigated. You can't really mitigate the risks of a fire, of a bushfire. The only thing that they could do is that the services themselves, there would have to be situations where they say, this is too dangerous even for our firefighters to go into. We'll just have to let it burn. You know, we know that the, that the professional firefighters have actually got recognition not only in um, our state but around Australia and also internationally that the risks to firefighters are so high 
of inhalation of smoke and other toxic substances. There's a whole pile of cancers and other conditions which they just automatically now get compensated for. So unfortunately, that's not the answer. You don't want people to be contracting shocking diseases. But it is an acknowledgement that these people, due to their work or due to their um, volunteer activities, are voluntarily placing themselves in very, very high-risk situations. Mm. And that actually brings me to my next question because bushfires throw up a range of occupational health and safety issues, not just for the firefighters, but those in the fire zone. So, for example, some work sites might be near a fire and they may become filled with smoke or other particulate matter. But what should workers be considering in those situations where their work site has become full of smoke or it's become difficult to breathe? What rights do they have? Employers have a duty to provide so far as is reasonably practicable a working environment that is safe and without risk to health. So that's, that covers everything, basically. And uh, things like smoke um, would certainly be putting people at risk, particularly if they, are, if they have a pre-existing condition. But also there have been cases where it's been... It's gone through compensation courts and it has been shown that people who have worked post-fires have developed chronic lung conditions. But, you know, lately we've also seen that workplaces are actually at risk of being of catching fire. So not, not just the toxic smoke that comes into, into the building, but also the, the place itself becoming, um, becoming a fire scene. And just a couple of weeks ago, WorkSafe was successful in prosecuting Hazelwood Power Corp. Now, I don't know if you remember the fires of 2014, mm. but the, um, the, Latrobe, the, the mine in Latrobe Valley uh, caught fire as a result of the bushfires, burned for 45 days. They've been found guilty of five charges under the Act, but also Section 23 that puts a duty on employers to other people. So even though this company didn't start the fire, it wasn't their fire, because they hadn't taken adequate precautions and the fire raged and it caused this terrible trouble for their own employees and for the people in the community, they haven't been fined yet. We don't know how high the fine will be, but I suspect it will be quite high. They've also been charged under the EPA Act for the pollution caused by the fire at the mine. So it's become really clear that employers or PCBUs must do what they need to do as, as far as reasonably practicable to protect the health and safety not only of workers but also the community. We've just heard indeed in the last couple of weeks during those large bushfires in New South Wales about the McDonald's store which was completely surrounded by fire fronts but required their workers to stay on. At what point there can the workers just say, I'm sorry, but this is, this is too dangerous for me, I'm going home. Do people have the right to do that without fear of losing their jobs? They have. I mean, there, there are two avenues for that. One of them is our common law rights. And so under our common law, irrespective of what other legislation there is, an individual worker has the right to say to an employer, I will not work in this situation. I believe that my health and safety is at immediate risk. Um, they're protected from being dismissed under the Fair Work Act. Uh, and I understand that quite a lot of unions have taken uh, PCBUs, employers, to court for threatening or sacking their workers when they stood up for health and safety reasons. And then under our Act and under all the other Acts, if you've got a health and safety rep, an elected health and safety rep, who's been trained, they can say, as the health and safety rep, I'm ordering a cease work in this situation. It is too dangerous. So turning now to the aftermath of a bushfire... There's a large number of OHS risks, I imagine, incorporated in the cleanup. So when people are returning to the wreckage of homes or businesses to start moving materials around, can you give us an idea about what some of the hazards might be 
like once the fires actually pass through? Yeah. Well, one of the um, one of the big ones that came up a few years ago when we had that big lot of bushfires through Victoria, uh, and I was involved with the WorkSafe Working Group that was looking into it, and that is that once homes were destroyed and buildings were destroyed, unfortunately we had a situation where asbestos is ubiquitous, um, even though it's been banned for, the, for over oh, well, almost 20 years now, or oh, 16 years, it's still in lots of our buildings that were built um, before the 80s. And so when a building is burnt, the the status of the asbestos is compromised and it releases fibres, which means it can be it can be very, very dangerous. And so they had to set up WorkSafe actually set up special working parties to make sure that the the removals were done quickly, that the, the material was removed quickly and so on. But that has to be remembered because a lot of our, a lot of places are in fact, you know, have got asbestos. When it's someone's home, that's even more important because people will go and do do the stuff themselves quite often. Uh, it's not a workplace. It's not officially covered under the legislation. So that's the sort of thing you have to be careful about. But then there are lots of other things that when they burn, they're going to emit um, toxic, toxic fumes. Uh, and plus the fact that one of the workers uh, who took a, a case for workers' compensation after the Hazelwood fire, his condition, his uh, chronic lung condition, actually developed during the cleanup through the burning embers. So there's stuff that when they... And this is why the, fire, the firefighters are, uh, are protected. When stuff burns, it gives off all sorts of toxic fumes. So it's, um, it's a situation you have to do a lot of... I think a lot of investigation into, or rather the people who are responsible, before they order workers back in to do anything. If there are workers out there who do have concerns about OHS in relation to fires or other issues, where can they go to find more information? The CFA have produced a guide for businesses. Uh, it's called Developing a Bushfire Emergency Plan. And that's been around since 2014 at least, um, 2012. This is, a, this is a, a new version. And it sets out what businesses need to do to plan. If they're in a bushfire area, they need to plan um, what they're going to do and, and, and not be left during the period of the bushfires. And in fact, they should have been developing this in the wintertime. So that when it comes up, they know exactly what to do. People are properly planned. They've got um, in place a whole lot of measures that they need to take. Workers can also contact their union because I think unions are starting to become aware that um, they have to assist members in, in providing information. WorkSafe, um, CFA, as I mentioned, uh, and certainly our own website. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks to both Paul and Renata for joining us. And it also brings me to the end of what will be my last edition as a presenter of the program, at least for the foreseeable future. Thanks to everyone who's agreed to be interviewed over the last three years, and thanks to all of you for listening. It's an immense privilege to be part of this show, which has been providing a voice for workers and their unions for more than 40 years. Stitch Together is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR with generous financial assistance from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. It's beamed right around the country thanks to the people at the Community Radio Network. But you can do your bit to keep workers' stories on the air by calling your local community radio station and subscribing today. If you want to contact the producer of the show, you can call 03 9419 8377 or email us at sticktogether3cr at You can also find us on Facebook. Just search for Stick Together Program. The podcast of this and other recent episodes can be found at 3cr.org.au forward slash stick together. And as always, remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there is a union for you. I'm Matt Kunkel, and until next time, stick together.